Now, I want to know what is your favourite, well, I probably can't get everyone's feedback, but at least in your head, what is your favourite everything coming together moment in a movie? You know, like, like when it all comes together, the moment when you realise that if you'd been paying attention, what you should have seen coming. Do you know, you know the moment? Uh, when all the small details have been previously carefully laid down by the storyteller, they come together and make it obvious what has been going on the whole time. My favourite coming together moment involves a cripple. It involves Verbal Kint, one of the usual suspects. Uh, and when the movie opens, we have Verbal sitting in this detective's office, his crippled left foot tucked under his chair, his slightly better right hand holding his more feeble left like this, and he's being grilled for information by his, about his more powerful accomplices in this crime. Now, now, Verbal has a certain sort of pathetic, you know, lovable charm as he tells these stories. And he tells the stories of the crime with lots of details, it's kind of like a grandfather. There's a few grandfathers here. You know when granddad sort of, you know, shares just like more details than you really need to know, just sort of drops things in. And Verbal does the same thing like this. He says, you remember that time I was in a barbershop quartet down in Skokie, Illinois? And uh, all that time when I was picking coffee beans in Guatemala, we used to make fresh coffee right off the tree. Don't know if you can do that. Uh, sometimes the details were about the crime. He might say, oh, yeah, there was a fence named Redfoot. We met a lawyer named Kobayashi. And later on, as the detective turns around and sits down on the desk, looking sort of over at the wall that Verbal had been facing, he notices sort of weird things. Like, like the brand of the whiteboard was a quartet brand whiteboard made in Skokie, Illinois. And there's a travel brochure for Guatemala there and a mugshot uh, with the alias Redfoot underneath it. And as he drops the mug in shock, we see, as it smashes on the floor, the name of the mug manufacturer written at the very bottom. It was Kobayashi Porcelain. Every detail, the whole movie through, carefully laid down in the movie, all leading up to this moment, and it all dawns on the detective what had been going on the whole time. The verbal wasn't a poor cripple. He'd been playing with the cop the whole time with made-up names from his office posters. He was actually the mastermind. And then as he walks off, you sort of see Verbal walking off outside the police station because he's, he's gotten out by this time and he, he sort of hobbles, hobbles, and then the hobbles turn into a stride. And the hand unclenches and he walks off. And like that, he's gone. Now, this, this episode in the Book of Acts, it is the culmination. It is that moment. This is actually the culmination of the Bible story up to this point. Acts 10 contains details that are not just details. They are pulling together the whole of human history in this moment. This is a special chapter. If you haven't seen that before, this is going to be really fun. We start the story with Peter, personal friend of Jesus, leader of the early church. He's already on the road. He's on the road from Joppa to Caesarea. Now, he's taking that journey uh, because of two separate and quite unique encounters with God, right? The setup. I don't know if this is me. Am I, am I making things bad here? Okay, nothing we can do about it. Sorry, guys, my fault. I'm happy to speak louder if, it, if that helps. So there's two unique encounters with God, and there's a, there's a double setup. Um, two supernatural visions, one for each of the main characters, one for a Jew and one for a Gentile. Now, the first one is an angel's visit to a God-fearing Roman centurion. Now, now I said that right, a, a, an Israel's God-fearing Roman centurion. Non-Jews becoming uh, converting to Judaism was a thing. 
back in the first century. Uh, some people would see the lifestyle that they had under God's law, their devotion to that God, and think, I want in on that. But to really follow Israel's God, like, they would need to go full Jewish. And I mean, circumcision and no bacon. Like, like this is full commitment, right? The whole, like, you have to do this. But Cornelius hadn't gone that far. I don't know if you noticed at the start of the chapter. You feel free to have your Bible open. This is a really cool chapter. Um, got, again, cool chapter for details. Um, in verse 2, he's called a God-fearer. Now, this is, this is a bit more common, understandably. They were a devout person, would want to follow the God of Israel, but um, he gave generously to the poor, and he prayed to Israel's God regularly, but he's still a Gentile, doesn't have to go the full Jew. He still eat the pork. But he's still a Gentile, and he is unclean in the eyes of the Jews. But God listens to Cornelius' prayers and sends an angel to him. And the angel's message is, yeah, I don't know what the message is. You have to go to Peter to get the message. It's really strange. Why? I'm just, yeah, just going to turn it off. All right. So it's, it's just strange. I've just always wondered, why didn't the angel tell Cornelius what he was supposed to know? Why did he say, no, I've come specially as an angel to you with a message that someone else has a message? Well, like all details in this story, it's for a reason. Now, next, God starts working on the Jewish protagonist and sends a separate vision to Peter, who is waiting for lunch. And he is very hungry. He's so hungry, he starts seeing visions, visions of food falling from the sky in a sheet. Uh, specifically, animals that God had told the Jews were unclean for them to eat. The kind of animals that Cornelius would have been eating, regular food on his table. But Peter, when he was told, get up and eat, says, no, 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 no way. I- I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Why would I do this, God? Now, Peter, who does have a history of contradicting God, like that's, we, we know that he does this kind of regularly, if you might remember the get-behind-me-Satan incident, um, he, he, he you know, follows that form, no way, God, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do, because I know that's wrong, to which the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this happens three times, which I assume includes Peter's response. So once again, saying dumb things three times in a row is also something Peter has some pretty good form with. Now, at the end of this, Peter's got no idea what it all means. But when Cornelius' men rock up on the door, we've had the two visions that caused this crazy meeting. Cornelius' men knock on the door. The Spirit says to Peter, no, you're supposed to go with them. And so he does. Still wondering what on earth this is all about. Now, where are they going? I'm glad you asked. I've checked the maps. Uh, This is about a 12-hour walk. According to Google, if you're going sort of just a straight flat chat walk, you're not, you're not stopping. So I assume this took quite a while. So Peter's got a bit of time to, to puzzle out what's happening. So when he arrives down at Joppa on the coast, I love the fact that Joppa is now called Jaffa. That's cool. Um, uh, he, he, Cornelius says to, well, first of all, Peter says, okay, so what's all this about? Cornelius says, ah, oh, you had a vision too. Well, look, this, this angel told me that God's heard my prayers and my gifts to the poor and that I should call you. And in short, Cornelius says, well, I don't know what happens now here either. <laughs> Can you give me the message? Now, at that moment, it becomes clear that God is the, run, the one running this show. 
Peter and Cornelius don't know what's going on. It was God who arranged for Peter to be a chopper. It was God who sent the angel to Cornelius to send for Peter. It was God who sent the three visions to make sure that Peter wouldn't just ignore this unclean Gentiles on his doorstep saying, hey, do this. See, this moment is clearly about God's plans and purposes coming together. And then Peter twigs. He gets it. He drops his mug and it smashes. It's his usual suspect's moment. All the details come crashing together. And I'll weave that together for you. It starts with his 12-hour walk from Joppa. Now, I don't think it was just that the beautiful Mediterranean sea breeze cleared his head. That probably would have, you know, probably would have helped. It's kind of nice. But the question is, why was Peter there in the first place? Why was he at Joppa? Maybe he does just like long walks along the beach. I mean, that, that, that is actually Joppa, by the way. That's, that's, that's a, a photo of the place. Um, but why include that in the story? Like it plays no part in the story at all, except that it's where Peter happened to be at the time. And yet it gets mentioned all the time. Did you notice verse 8? Hey, remember, it's Joppa that they sent the men to. Verse 23, did you remember that the men were from Joppa? Verse 32, hey, just a reminder, the place that I was told to go was Joppa by the sea. Now, I'm sure, with a, sure there's a few Bible nerds in the, in the congregation. Who else knows where in the Bible Joppa is mentioned? Joppa. Jonah? Yeah, that's right. Just like in my Sunday school, Jonah and the whale would have been a staple of Peter's Saturday school, right? He would have absolutely known. So I'm willing to bet Peter has done multiple Jonah and the whale crafts, you know, sort of various plates you cut them out. That the place where Peter was walking, uh, sorry, place where Peter was walking was the exact place where Jonah had chucked a sickie from profit work and done a runner and ended up getting spat back up on the beach. Now, why on earth would this have helped Peter work out what was going on? Well, he, it is because he knew the story. You see, why did Jonah run away on that boat from Joppa? What was he running from? Well, see, God had also asked Jonah to go talk to some filthy Gentiles, hadn't he? The idea being that these filthy Gentiles would repent of their violent way of life and God would forgive them. But Jonah, Jonah wanted none of it. He didn't want these non-Jews to know his God. They're the bad guys. Let them get what they deserve. And I know my God is annoyingly forgiving. Like, seriously, like he's going to forgive them. I swear, if I go and preach to them, he's going to forgive them and it's going to be the worst. You see, Jonah represented the group of Israelites who remembered that God had chosen them to be special you people are really special. Ascot's church is special. But he'd forgotten what he'd chosen them to be special for. They were never meant to look down on the rest of the world because they were special. They were meant to show God to the rest of the world, to love the rest of the world. They were special for that purpose, to give and to bless the rest of the world, not to think of themselves as better. So that those people in the rest of the world could be forgiven. See, um, I don't know, have you ever wondered, I mean, this might be just my strange mind, but have you ever wondered, like, the Bible's kind of a narrow book, like in terms of history, right? Like, why isn't there anything about China in the Bible? There's a very little bit about the East, but it's only in how it affects Israel. Uh, why, why is there nothing about the Americas or Indigenous Australia? Why is it this one little bit, this one little nation that, that's in focus? Is it because God is just theirs and doesn't care about the rest of the world? Well, I think it's actually the same reason that the Avengers movies focus on the superheroes. And they don't focus on the average Joe just walking, you know, through the street, walking down at Salamanca, having a coffee. It's not because the average Joe doesn't matter. 
It's because the fate of that average Joe depends on what these special few do to save them. And it's the same with the Bible. Throughout its middle sections, the Bible focuses on this people group of Israel to whom God gave the task, look, if you just trust me, stick with me, I'm going to use you to save the world. Until nearer the end, where, like the movies, when an Israelite does save the world. And then place by place, we start to celebrate the victory. Like at the end of a good disaster movie. You know, when the world's saved in Independence Day and then you see the celebrations in Sydney, the celebrations in New York. Now, as Peter mulls this in his head, this, this, this Jonah stuff, the mistake of Jonah, what God was trying to teach Jonah, it puts it together with the vision while walking past Jonah's beach. It starts to make sense to him. And he says to Cornelius, Ah, I've, I, know, I know you asked me to come with a message for you, but like I've just realized something. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And so he starts to unpack the good news of Jesus for them in verse 36. He says, well, I think I've got it up. Yeah, I do. Here we go. Verse 36. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord of all. See, news about Jesus has actually spread. People around the provinces are hearing that this Jesus stuff happened. And Peter says, hey, it really happened. I saw it. Pardon me. We were there. It's true. God really has made peace with humanity. He visited to, make, to, to, to do it, to make peace by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. See, what Peter preached to them that day is the same good news that Christians believe today. Uh, that's what he said to them. It's the same good news that, that myself and our church family here have all come to believe. It's been transforming lives for 2,000 years. Now, Peter starts to get this. Now, as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit comes upon everyone who hears. And in a, in a thing that seems to be common when God actually moves into a new people group, there's something really obvious, like there's almost physical manifestation, something where the people standing there just looking, they're like, oh, I can tell the Holy Spirit just did something because something crazy happened. Now, we don't know exactly what the physical manifestation is this time, but they're astonished. Like, they're surprised. Did you notice that? Like, what? I didn't think this was going to happen. Holy Spirit coming on Gentiles? Not really? God, is God, is this what you're up to? They were shocked. Now, uh, has anyone been watching a bit of Commonwealth Games? We watch a bit on Friday nights with the kids, show them some sort of different events. Um... Now, did anyone see any of the track? Because this lady, Sydney McLaughlin, she smashed the women's 400-meter hurdles. Um, she broke her own world record. You know, she's that kind of person. Crazy victory. Now, an innovation this year at the Commonwealth Games was that they were handing out medals to athletes straight after the race. So, you, you know, you cross the line, you're in first place, you, and they just shove a gold medal in your face, right? And you got it there. And it's, it's kind of cool. Like, I get that. It's great. Like, you're celebrating. You want to celebrate with your gold medal. Like, that, that, that makes sense. But some of the athletes got freaked out. They got really concerned by this because they, the, the first few races, like the first few days of the thing, the word hadn't got around that they were doing this. And so they're like, well, do, do we not get a ceremony? And like, Whoa. Do I not get to have my national anthem play and have everyone watching and recognize and hear the speeches and see this, have the podium and the camaraderie with the other two athletes? And 
Like, how could you deny? Like, imagine Sydney McLaughlin doing what she did, destroying the field, creating athletic history. The second place woman, like, she would have broken the world record coming second if she ever had a, the event had been a couple of years ago. How could you deny her this moment on the podium to, to, to not recognise the greatness? Uh, how, could, how could the body in charge of this fail to tell the world that this woman is the champion? It's just, it's just wrong, isn't it? It's unfair. I mean, look at the photo, right? That's her crossing the finish line. There's a reason you can't see any other competitors, because they're back too far. The second place woman who, remember, in 2019 would have broken a world record with that time. It's so wrong if we didn't celebrate. Now, thankfully, the Commonwealth Games organisers, they were going to do that. It was just a temporary gold medal they give you while you celebrate, and then they'll engrave your name on it properly and give you the real one, right? But do you, that, it's so obvious that it'd be wrong if we didn't celebrate that. That was how obvious it was that God's spirit had come upon Cornelius' household that day. In that family home that day in Caesarea, somehow it was so clear, these people trust Jesus. And so Peter, as the official representative of the church, just like the Commonwealth Committee, did what was appropriate and performed the ceremony that showed everyone, hey, we recognize what's happened here. See, this is his reasoning in verse 47. He says, how could I withhold the official ceremony? How, how, could, how could anyone withhold the official ceremony? God's clearly done a work in their lives. They've got the Holy Spirit. You can see it. How can anyone not, how could we not baptize them? How can we not also give them the symbol that outwardly and publicly declares what we've seen happen in their hearts is true? Or another way to think about it would be, how could a church not recognize something that God has already done? See, this is what baptism is. It's the outward sign of something that God has already done in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus. It's a, a seal administered by the community that, that declares publicly this person is one of us both to Christians but also to non-Christians. That's who this person is. And it's one of the reasons that we'll be baptising Fletcher this evening. Because his parents believe Jesus and they have received forgiveness of their sins in his name. And they intend to, with our help, raise Fletcher with Jesus as his king. So what do we do with this story? Well, I think one thing that is important You've got to say here, the God of the Bible is clearly the God of all races, isn't he? Clearly. Like, do you, do you see here how he doesn't only care about saving Cornelius and his household, he wants everyone in the world to know that they're part of his family. Like, he didn't just arrange all of these random things for no reason. This is the early era where, where non-Jews are only just starting to become Christians and God shows up in this big way to make sure that the whole church, in fact, the whole world knows. Yeah, you, you these are legitimate Christians. It doesn't matter that they're not Jews. No, no one can say, well, I guess they've got Jesus, but they're not circumcised. So, it's like, Peter's like, they've got the Holy Spirit. God has already made, God's already told us what's true of them. How could we not? Now, it's not going to happen visibly that obviously every time someone becomes a Christian. But like we said last week, when the Spirit moves, you can't, like, it's like the wind. You can't see the Spirit moving, but you can see the signs. And as we see the signs, we should be baptizing people. We shouldn't be withholding from them the, the, the entry to the family. Oh, once you get godly enough, then we'll, then we'll say you're a real Christian and we'll baptize you. And then once, we, once we can be sure this faith thing's going to stick. No. 
God made sure that just as Peter was a witness to Jesus dying on the cross, he was a witness to the Holy Spirit bringing the first non-Jews to faith in Jesus so that they would never be classed as second-class Christians for their race or for any other reason. Now, second thing is, well, I think this also means that we can't have any second-class Christians. There can't be, can there? Because if, 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 if the criteria for being a Christian is the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, is that you trust in Jesus, then is it, there's only one kind of Christian. That is Christians who desperately need forgiveness, who just have a Jesus who is good enough to do it. There is not good Christians and bad Christians. And where in our minds we actually start separating out, separating out people into good Christians and bad Christians, we are not biblical. Do not call anything that God has made clean, unclean. Because you'll find yourself arguing with God. And he's right. Now why? Why did God do this? God did this because he wants to be with his people. This is also a story about how God wants to be with humanity. There is not one person that is so far from God that he doesn't invite them into his family. Uh, you might be sitting here today thinking, ah, uh, yeah, you know, there's Christian nice people and I'm really not from that world. Like, I'm here, I'm here for Fletch because he's cute and awesome and stuff. But like, you know, uh, uh, I'm so far from that. I don't know God. I've never spoken to God. God doesn't seem to mind. He would love to speak to you. He would love to be with you. He'd love to invite you into his family. Now, God also says here in this passage, you might have noticed it. He says, yes, I'll judge the world. You need to know that I will not skip justice. That's coming. There is judgment. But here I'm offering you forgiveness, friendship with me. Let me adopt you as my child, please. You might not get exactly how Jesus makes things right between you and God, because this is also new to you, foreign. But that, that's okay. It was foreign to these people too. They didn't quite fit with God. They didn't know the culture. But God didn't just love them. He wanted them to know that they were loved. That's why he arranged the circumstances as he did. He didn't just save them. He wanted them to have confidence that they were a saved part of his people. He loved us by dying on a cross, but he arranged these events, this story, what happened with Peter, so that you would know that you're loved. Yeah, I think that's probably not a bad spot to finish up. How about we pray together? Heavenly Father, you really cared about your early church and you didn't want your early church to have second-class Christians. You didn't want there to be uh, any this foolishness of Christians dividing between themselves or of Christians feeling like they're not legitimately your children because of their relationships with other Christians. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is our relationship with you that determines whether or not we belong to you. That is what your son has done for us, not our performance, not our ability to be good, not our coming from the right place, coming from the right school, coming from the right money, coming from the right culture. It is simply what Jesus did to forgive all of the things and everything that might be wrong with us that qualifies us to be part of your family. Father, thank you for caring so much, not just that we are actually saved and that we are your children, but that we know that we're saved and that we're your children and that the whole church knows it too and so father as we come to baptize fletcher we ask lord that you would uh, bless us that you bless him 
that we might include him in our family life as we should and that he might grow up in the fear and instruction of you just as we, Lord, might continue to grow in the fear and instruction of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.